Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Homegrown Power. My name's Pasita Rudder. And I'm Jasmine Lever. And today we're in City Heights, San Diego, to talk to Ismahan Abdullahi about some of the culture work they're doing at Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans, also known as PANA. Yeah, I learned so much from Ismahan in our conversation today. They're just using so many cool art projects and culture to really push their organizing work, things like photography and uh, some really dope poetry slams. You know, they're really shifting the way that we view each other. Um, They're holding space for their community and just working towards that long-term change where we can all belong and have what we need to thrive. They're doing such great work. And Basita, what stood out to you when you first got to Bana? I think what I noticed rolling into City Heights, San Diego, was how strong and rich the immigrant and refugee culture was there. Um, So the PANA office is right next door to the South Sudanese Community Center. And next to that is the East African Community and Cultural Center. And as I was walking up to their office, you could just hear the African music playing in the streets. And outside of their office were these huge black and white portraits of community members. Um, So it just felt super like culturally rich in City Heights. But our conversation was also really rich. And we talked about Muslim American identity, um, assimilation, and some of the housing issues that they're going through in San Diego. So let's jump right into that conversation. I am the Director of Movement Campaign Strategies at PANA, Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans. And PANA really is an advocacy, leadership development, um, and, uh, public policy organizing hub that centers the voices and visibility of refugees in San Diego County. And one of the things we really focus on is recognizing the informal processes and informal leaders that may not be identified as leaders in in, in the traditional sense of organizing. So San Diego County um, is interesting because right now where we are recording City Heights um, is a vibrant community that's part of the city of San Diego um, where you have a lot of folks in communities of color. You have immigrants, you have refugees, you have asylum seekers, you have individuals who've been here for a very, very long time um, and their families grew up here. And the San Diego community is diverse. And that diversity is not often reflected in the decision makers um, and folks who hold office. So you have a vibrant, diverse city um, and community, but at the same time, you have to think about, you know, the dynamics that exist in the political landscape where the decision makers oftentimes do not reflect. Even there has been some gains, um, you know, positive gains. Uh, as a whole, the community here is. I guess for me, when I think about my home in San Diego, when I think about San Diego community, the image that comes to my mind is so many different languages, Mm -hmm. so many different faces, so many different individuals who are trapped in a system that we will change Mm -hmm. um, one day, but also opportunity as well. 
an opportunity to not just envision and create a world where all these individuals are able to realize their full potential, but also recognizing and honoring that that distinct diversity. That in diversity is not just about hey, you know, how many different cultures do we have exist here, but it's also about the thoughts, the processes that exist, um, you know, in place and opportunities where individuals feel that they can live with dignity. That's so cool. I love something you said about um, acknowledging or uplifting like informal leaders and organizers because I think so much we have this like vision or stereotype about like what an organizer is and the type of credentials you have to have when like so many of our immigrant communities like are already doing those things on a daily basis. Um, Can you tell us more about San Diego? Like what do the communities there look like? Um, What are the especially like immigrant communities? As California, we know that the minority, we have a minority majority, um, and I would like to think San Diego is similar to that as well. Um, of course, you don't see that in the outskirts of San Diego. It's very segregated, especially if folks think, um, you know, low income or communities of color, which are not often synonymous. Folks mm-hmm. tend to think low income automatically means communities of color, you right. know? Um, and I want us to shift that dominant narrative. Um, but San Diego County in general, we've, since 1975, we've resettled um, over 85 or 86,000 refugees in San Diego. San Diego County is a major hub um, out of all the counties in California um, to, res- to resettle refugees. And even though this current Im- administration has impacted the number of refugees that are coming in, San Diego has been a hotbed for a lot of refugees and asylum seekers. And so with it being such a hotbed of immigrants and refugees coming together, does it feel like there's some kind of cultural heritage here? What does what does everyday look like in San Diego? Everyday San Diego, um, it depends what street are you walking. <laughs> if you walk in certain areas, you would realize that you are walking into KKK land. Um, and certain areas where you're walking into, you see, um, such as you know, City Heights and Barrio Logan. You you in Chicano Park, you sense a sense uh, a beautiful energy of community a beautiful energy of, um, you know, communities that are diverse, black and brown solidarity. If you go into Southeast San Diego, so it depends on what area you're walking into. I can guarantee you there's certain areas that if I went there, I wouldn't feel as safe being a, you know, unapologetic Muslim, black, Somali refugee. And there's certain areas that I would be able to walk comfortably thinking, this is home. Mm. Yeah. So for me, San Diego County, there's as much as you know, we say America's finest city. There's a lot for us to fix. There's a lot for us to focus on, especially when it comes to equity. Um, but also there's been a sense of moving forward. It's not the same as it was, you know, 10 years ago. And that because and that's coming from the fact that communities of color have been building power over the years um, and continue to build grassroots community power. I feel like I knew so little about San Diego. <laughs> I feel like you're educating me so much because I didn't know that. Um, I think there's like that stereotype. When I think about San Diego, I think about like the beach and the sun and people like vacationing. <laughs> um, so it's cool to learn more about communities. But um, we also want to know like, how did you get started organizing? Like, what, what has been your journey um, to doing this work in your community? Um, as you were saying that, I don't know why this came to my mind, but I was thinking of a, um, I forgot her name. I can't believe this. The singer that said, um, maybe uh, I was born this way. Oh, Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I, 
know why in my mind I was like, wait, hold on. <laughs> and I just saw a, a trailer of some, some movie that she was in. But um, the, the reason why I'm referencing Lady Gaga, um, you know, is really thinking about people think you become a leader, that there's something is ignited in you. And oftentimes when you realize that it's people's experiences that sometimes forces them to be in positions of leadership, mm. right? Um, so for me, I, I became an organizer simply because of the experiences that I had as a um, black Muslim young girl growing up in America, facing discrimination, facing Islamophobia, facing xenophobia over the years and even up until now. And I was in a position after the September 11th attacks where I realized, you know, before I could even mourn as an American, my, my faith and my identity and the core of who I am was being attacked, which was completely different than a lot of the discrimination that I, that I faced um, as, as, a, as a black woman. And it ignited something in me when I saw a lot of youth and a lot of individuals being afraid to identify as being Muslim. Mm. And for me, I was thinking like, I gotta do something. Like I, I have to create some kind of space. I have to do something where I can become more active in, you know, in my community, but at the same time, create a space where youth can feel that they can belong, where youth did not have to be ashamed of their Muslim identity. So my organizing, um, you know, not positionally, but within myself has started during that experience of, you know, September 11th attacks and afterwards and, you know, everything that happened after. So for me, it was a, it was a journey. It was a long journey um, of really creating a space where youth can feel comfortable in their own skin, feel comfortable in their own faith, and be unapologetic. We talk about refugee community, we talk about Muslim community, and it's not a blanket statement. People are different. People have different journeys of being refugees. I arrived here as a refugee in, in the 90s, when and the individuals who are arriving here as refugees are completely different experiences. You know, um, the political landscape is different. So for me, it was really taking a step back and realizing what kind of space can I create, can I further create, to really making sure that our power building, our grassroots community power building, is being done collectively together. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the challenges you faced when you first came here as a refugee? The challenges I faced was... Um, <laughs> One, understanding the language and getting to know is really frustrating growing up. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I strove hard um, to, to learn English as much as I can because I felt like I was catching up. Uh, because sometimes people will be speaking and you're like, what in the world are they talking about? You know, um, and just really trying to understand the different people don't realize how much different the American culture is. And how much sometimes it's a rude shock, rude awakening. Um, funny story, the other day, my mom... Um, we realized my mom has been telling her doctor that she's 43 every single year. <laughs> and we didn't realize that. That was not something that we caught on. So I remember we're asking her, we're like, Mom, why do you do that? And then she said, oh, she just shrugged it off and was like, oh, it's just something nice I learned from the American culture. <laughs> so we were, we were laughing so hard. But then I was just like, oh, that's interesting, right? But people talk about... You know, coming here and assimilating, and that's a word that I despise. Because <laughs> yeah, it's not about assimilation, even integration. People talk about, hey, it's time for you to integrate into this new culture. 
But what makes America so beautiful is the different cultures, the different backgrounds, the different languages, the different customs that come together that can enrich the overall American culture. I see that American culture is being made up of so many different cultures, right? And it's interesting because for me, it's about inclusion. It's really about inclusion um, and really reimagining what it means for refugees to resettle here, for immigrants to be here, honoring the indigenous folks whose lands were stolen, right? Um, thinking about inclusivity from a perspective of, you know, it's not about what can the person lose to belong, but what can the person come and add, or not just come, but they're already here as well, and add, and a, what shift can we make to make room and space for these individuals or these groups? I just think about the power of like art and culture to communicate like the individuality of everyone's journey. Um, so what are some ways that y'all are using art or culture to kind of like tell these different stories at Pana? So cultural strategy is a critical component of what we do. Um, real talk. I remember putting, I've been putting on youth events for over a decade. And one of the things that I've realized was when we incorporate a perspective of really, really letting the youth lead with their voice and their vision, you get a completely different product, completely different product. So for us, incorporating cultural strategy was really going back to the, you know, to the roots of who we are as individuals who are in this movement for the long term um, and centering not just our community, but also centering an age group that's often neglected, right? So cultural strategy for us, one of the ways that we incorporated was really handing the youth the opportunity to put on open mic nights, be able to do slam, um, you know, um, poetry slams and, you know, spoken word, and really just talking about their experience as being refugees, as being, you know, uh, youth of color, as being individuals who have to go through a system that they know is marginalizing them and disenfranchising them and how they navigate through that system. So it has been really beautiful to see just the art that has come from that. There's painting even in our office that we put up, um, you know, that youth have uh, put together telling their own stories and expressing themselves as well as the poetry that they've done so we've done numerous uh, open mic events that we partnered up with local um, museums and really just showcasing um, the beauty of what they do and that has really translated into creating a space where nowadays I'm not even really overseeing those events the youth have been running with it just saying this is what we want to do and during those times we were registering folks to vote you know, we've been registering folks to vote and trying to connect them um, to understanding that, okay, now you feel this way. Now you see how people around you, the youth of other um, cultures are feeling as well. What are we gonna do about it? I mean, I think it's super important to have spaces for youth of color to be able to express themselves, to be able to engage with their culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that as an immigrant myself, when coming to America, it kind of felt like, I know you hate the word assimilation, but yeah. it kind of felt like you had to assimilate in order to basically make it, right, to get through. Um, so how do you combat that type of feeling in youth um, who are immigrants and refugees in San Diego? Oh, goodness. Um, the reason why I'm saying that, because the message that I received growing up was assimilate because there's no other way for you to be American because American was always Ooh. identified to me as being blue-eyed and being blonde-haired and being fair-skinned. And growing up, I was like, well, that's not me. So maybe if I lay low, 
you know, then folks won't notice, right? Um, and then again, it wasn't until like middle school. So for me, I turned that energy into my academics, right? Um, but, but then just going through high school, going through college, I've been able to change that perspective of like, that's not who I need to be. That's not even who I am, right? So how in the world can youth really take the dominant narrative that's being pushed on them and trying to put them in a box or define who they are, especially for youth of color and um, refugee immigrant youth, is really just shake things up, right? Change cannot come without agitation. But at the same time, realizing that dominant narratives cannot be changed until we tell our own stories, until we become you know, the authors of our own stories and realizing that we can change the dominant narrative and bring about that cultural shift that we um, want to see and how we define American, who, who, who an American is, by taking our own stories, sharing them. We also heard about the Inside Out Project, where a mobile photo booth truck, or as Pasita called it, a Polaroid camera on wheels, takes portraits and prints poster-sized photos highlighting folks in the community. As I was w walking through the office, I saw these beautiful portraits. Um, they're like black and white self-portraits of I'm assuming people in the community. Yes. Is that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you explain more what that is? Um, and yeah, what is that project? Because it looks amazing. Beautiful project. Um, so PANA is one of the Inc. organizations for Power California. Um, Power California um, teamed up with Inside Out, JR, um, in terms of really looking at get out the vote efforts by seeing what's in the community and bringing what's inside out. Right, so that's why it's called Inside Out Project. But for me, what was beautiful about this experience and this project was really seeing how youth, once their picture, it was not just about taking your picture, it's about being in community, building a community, getting folks to register to vote, and really taking a step back because every single one of those photos tells a story. Every single one of the expressions that we see in these photos has carried so much of the history that we don't see. In individuals right the backgrounds that we don't see the stories that are at the service that we just took a moment to ask in you know and just talk to individuals and have a conversation that we, we might get to know right so the inside out project really um, served as a place for us to mobilize our community folks to register to vote um, and also just get the word out about what it means to show up for refugees we had folks that just come and say, hey, I saw on the Instagram or on the social media that, you know, this project was going on and they just participated and nobody was talking about like, you know, oh, I'm from this organization or I'm from this kind of community. It was just a beautiful sense of folks from different languages. I think uh, working with young people too, like for me, I know it's so like, it's so intuitive to them to even just think beyond those types of like categories. Um, it's so intuitive to think about uh, people's inherent humanity and dignity versus like who is deserving and so that gives me hope <laughs> so I just think about like um, you know you mentioned like poetry slams and all these things um, I also think about the inherent um, nature of like the healing that happens in those spaces can you speak a little bit about that um, you know my, my parents were refugees and I think about like the a lot of like the intergenerational trauma but I 
like how do we create are are you seeing spaces where like intentional healing is happening um right now that's a good question um for me trauma folks sometimes see trauma as being horizontal um and they don't realize it's something that's vertical trauma gets passed on generation to generation um and i'm saying that for an individual who came here as a refugee who has witnessed the trauma that my family went through, but then also realizing the impact that it will have on the next generation as well. Um, So there are healing spaces. I know a lot of folks, one of the things that I incorporated um, into some of the spaces that I'm in is really thinking about a mindfulness, you know, practice or mindfulness exercise that we can do before we we come in, um, you know, before we even get started on the day, um, whether it's with, with, with our staff or just with the youth that we're in the spaces with. And there's a lot of folks that actually, um, some of the refugees that do come here that are of Muslim background, take moments out to go pray, just to reconnect with God spiritually. But also healing comes from being together as well and being in community. Um, And there's a beautiful sense of calm and energy that comes with being with individuals that you know are standing with you, you know, tall and proudly in welcoming in a world that everybody can see themselves being part of. So I think there's healing in the movement in general because we're envisioning a world and we have that seed of hope that we're watering every day together um, to create a tree that you know could be a shade for us and for others along the way. So I think there's a healing and power in community, but I know there's healing when it comes to prayer and healing that comes from individuals just inkling themselves as well. Mm-hmm. And I think not hiding our struggles as well. I feel like as people of color, we oftentimes fold ourselves into the stereotype of we have to be strong, we have to be resilient, we have to, you know, all of these Mm -hmm. things, but we don't really take the time to think about, like, in order to heal, you have to uncover what needs to be healed, right? Um, So I think it's really important for us to be creating those spaces where we can be real Mm -hmm. with each other and genuine about the struggles that we face, the struggles that we have faced, the struggles that our families have faced or are facing, um, so we can heal those. Exactly. And there's healing in vulnerability, you know, Um, and I definitely agree with you. I think also realizing that healing comes from not just recognizing the struggle but walking through the struggle together um, as well and creating that space where folks feel comfortable and safe to be able to talk about the struggles that they're facing whether on an individual level family level or even societal level kind of creating that kind of space um, is really critical yeah yeah thank you so much for mentioning that Ismahan talks about the housing crisis in San Diego and what PANA is doing to help solve the problem of the lack of affordable housing. So what sort of things is PANA working on right now? A housing campaign, um, really thinking about a right to a roof campaign where we're envisioning, um, you know, it's San Diego that is housing everyone, right? Because oftentimes, um, not oftentimes actually, what happens in San Diego is we build housing for higher income folks than we do for moderate income and also low income and very low income. So really thinking about, you know, what does it mean to house folks, right? Because we see individuals in the refugee community who talk about how having eight to 13 people living in two bedrooms, 
right because they can't find housing or families living together because their their combined income is not going to be able to be enough to afford uh, a space to live in but we've seen gentrification here as well you know thinking about all the struggles that we're facing for us our housing campaign is our top priority like what is the approach to the housing situation here like is it um because I know some places are doing community benefit agreements or like public lands policies. Like what is the approach in San Diego? Um, so I want to lift up an ordinance that was just passed um, and um, much love and much thanks to city council member Georgette Gomez, um, who's a trailblazer, came from the community, deeply rooted in the community, um, and now has been um, um, elected as city council for City Heights, for um, District 9. Um, in 2016 and there's an ordinance that you know her team just passed where it eliminated dis- uh, discrimination and anti-discrimination ordinance about section 8 um, and any source of income so pretty much it's, it's it said that individuals who are looking for housing cannot be discriminated against just because of their source of income mm. um, and that's really powerful yeah. because one of the things that we see here in San Diego is a lot of segregation we have a lot of you know, landlords that as soon as they see, hey, Section A is a source of income, they refuse families, right? Um, so really just that alone in and of itself was a was a game changer. But really imagining, moving that conversation along to think about inclusionary housing, that way when developers are developing new units that, you know, a certain percentage of that can be affordable housing and available to low-income and very low-income families. Um, and if that cannot be completed or if that cannot be met, then at least, you know, paying a certain percentage of it in lieu fee. Um, so really ima- reimagining those small quirks um, in the system that actually prevent affordable housing um, to be prevalent in the community. So for our housing work, a lot of times it's really spent on making sure that we're centering the folks, the folks who are impacted because in sometimes in city council, you don't see these individuals who are impacted. So what did you see is the, in, the industry itself coming out, right? But not the folks who have been impacted by the housing crisis. So making sure that that's centerfold and then also working with our partners um, and, and local elected officials to really thinking about, you know, what is what is the housing crisis look like, look like in San Diego and how can local city council members work with statewide because there's a lot of statewide, um, you know, uh, measures that are going to be on the ballot in 2018 to really reimagine what, you know, how we can approach solutions to um to the affordable housing crisis that we have collectively mm-hmm. yeah in a nutshell um and then the second aspect of it is really building on a civic engagement infrastructure where we're getting more of our folks um to hit the polls to be civically engaged to participating in local um you know um, city council meetings that really adhere to to the policies that they want to lift up so a lot of our campaign really thinking about you know, affordable housing, lifting up our civic engagement infrastructure, and then the non-Muslim ban um, efforts that we're doing as well. Because we know that this administration has put a ban on refugees coming from Muslim-majority countries. Um, and then we had 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 versions of this ban, but, you know, it, it's a Muslim ban, um, point blank period. And just realizing that there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of legal work that goes into that as well. Um, folks who've been, you know, separated from their families, individuals who are not able to bring families on that they've been in the process of doing so. So really lifting up those stories. And I think we can see too the ways in which um, immigrants and refugees have kind of been ignored by yeah. politicians and yeah. political administration. Um, so just wondering, like, what's the what's the fight 
back to that what's the um what do we do in response to being ignored by politicians and if you're ignored be loud and continue to be loud and i feel like um if folks really understand what the meaning of solidarity and intersectional work is that nobody's free until we are all free then we can lift each other up um so when we have you know policymakers, individuals who are campaigning on hate or xenophobia or islamophobia or really thinking about all the isms that that we can think about and all the phobias that we can think about if we collectively as americans from different cultural groups different struggles different ends of the spectrum of um you know living in america really say that you know we cannot allow that to happen really pushing back um, pushing back proactively um, and also in, in a strong solidarity um, can help us shift that, right? So that we can really shift the culture in America where you do not campaign on hate on any group, on any individual, right? So when you do, then you have a lot of chorus of voices that are speaking strongly about it. So for me, it's a matter of solidarity and intersectional work um, and strengthening those um, because, you know, it's easier to conquer folks when they're divided. So thinking about all the different, um, you know, vulnerable communities and marginalized communities and thinking about beautiful ways that we can continue to come together, um, you know, to fight back. Absolutely. I think just listening to you say that, I think so much about how many of our struggles are also just like, it's kind of like the same thing happening in different countries. So like, I think about so my family's from El Salvador and I see what's happening in Syria and it's like the same strategies, the same things happening, same thing in Palestine um, and now same struggles with like the temporary protected status that was eliminated and I know um, for not just Latin American countries but countries um, in Africa as well and I think this is the first time that people have been like having to confront policies right like and I think people just never really like engaged with it so really like forcing people to engage like what does it mean when my neighbor has to choose whether to you know uh, leave their only child here and go back or you know just these like impossible choices and I think something we've been asking other folks too is um, like what would you tell other orgs or other people in other communities who are probably facing similar the same struggles like and want to start doing cultural strategy want to st- start holding these spaces like what's advice you would give them or what are, what's your like top tips on how to get started be open-minded <laughs> um and know that it's a uh it's a learning process um because oftentimes when you think about um, cultural strategy you're thinking big hey this is how we want to show up in 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 the media which is important you know this is how we want to show up in in Hollywood which is important but that's not what cultural strategy is it might be a component of it but really thinking about the day-to-day how to incorporate uh, cultural strategy into things that you're already doing or reimagining certain things so for me it's about being open-minded and understanding that um, it gives you an opportunity to think outside the box and not push yourself into a position where you're doing organizing in the traditional way of doing organizing, but you're reimagining um, the world and reimagining what collective work looks like through cultural strategy uh, and an intentional approach to cultural strategy. So I think being open-minded, understanding that is a learning process and going with the flow, understanding that being strategic, sometimes like things will come up that you're like, this works better for our community, right? Um, and understanding that it has to be an intentional 
um, you know, approach. It's not something that you're just going to be doing haphazardly like, hey, great, let's just incorporate this into this little piece. But it's something that's embedded throughout the work. It's not just something that just shows up as a program of its own, which it could be possible. But I see cultural strategy as being embedded in a lot of the different, um, you know, the infrastructure that you're creating, the program that you're, con- that you're creating, um, the different age groups that you're working with. So I feel like it's something that's constant. Um, so just understanding that from the get-go kind of helps you get out of the box of how you probably would have approached it. <laughs> yeah, and I like that you lifted that up um, around being open-minded and and recognizing that it's a learning process because yeah. if you think about culture, culture isn't stagnant, right? Exactly. Culture isn't static. It's constantly moving. It's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about a cultural strategy, that mm-hmm. also needs to be constantly moving and constantly changing. Yeah. And our definition of cultural strategy is not going to be the same today yeah. as it will be 15 years from now, Absolutely. right? Um, so like, we're all learning, right? It's yeah. a learning process, but we know that we're dedicated to incorporating our own culture because we know that that's who we are yeah. like our own culture isn't separate from us it's actually a part of who we are exactly. as human beings mm-hmm. and be unapologetic about it <laughs> yeah just do it. it just do it <laughs> homegrown power california's grassroots cultural organizers is a production of power california a 501c3 organization. Power California harnesses the energy of young voters of color and their families to create a state that is equitable, inclusive, and just for everyone who calls California home. Opinions expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position of Power California. To learn more about us and support our work, check out our website at www.powercalifornia.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PowerCA Now.